Okay, let's open with a word of prayer together. Father, thank you for this new day, for the bright sunshine. We just thank you for uh, your goodness, your grace, and your glory, Lord. As the bright light reminds us, we just look forward to the time when your glory will envelop the earth, it will envelop the temple, and uh, when these bodies of ours will be glorified and will no longer be under the curse of sin. Lord, I thank you for this church. Thank you for uh, just allowing us to have a place to come and fellowship together and uh, study your word. And we ask now your blessings on this uh, Bible study hour as we continue to take a look at uh, things to come and at uh, specifically that moment when we will be rewarded for all that we have endured and our acts of faithfulness here on earth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Great to see you. I wanted to give a quick report about my uh, time in uh, Duluth. Uh, every October for the past 15 years, I've had the privilege of traveling up to uh, a conference in Duluth. They do a pastor's conference and then right on the heels of it, uh, a general conference. This year, uh, I only spoke at the pastor's conference and I talked about uh, a subject I've talked a lot about through the years, but I kind of catered it toward pastors. It was not just pastors, the conferences for pastors, missionaries, and church leaders. So there was kind of a mixture of, of folks there, about 100 folks. But I talked about seven careless errors that we make when studying the Bible. And uh, so if you're interested in that, that video is posted at notbyworks.org. And also the podcast is posted. It will be the most recent podcast on the Not By Works podcast channel uh, up until this afternoon, anyway, when we post today's messages. Uh, and then uh, Tuesday... Uh, while I was on the road, actually at the hotel, I did my monthly now uh, interview with uh, Curtis Chamberlain and the Critis Christian Underground News Network, and we talked about the metaphor in Scripture of light and darkness and how Satan is the prince of darkness and, uh, you know, Christ represents light, God is light, in him is there is no darkness at all. So we, we called it Exposing the Works of Darkness. It's about 45 minutes and uh, just a great discussion, really enjoy uh, my time with uh, with Curtis uh, every month. Some of you that have been <coughs> following Not By Works for a while know we used to do that uh, weekly for about a year and a half, and then Curtis got real sick, had COVID, was really not doing well at all, took a break from uh, the Christian Underground News Network and all of the interviews that he does, and then uh, kicked back up again last month, and uh, we're on the schedule for the first Tuesday of every month. So I encourage you to check uh, that out. Uh, we got the proof copy of Spirit of the Antichrist, Volume 2. It looks fantastic. I just can't wait uh, to get it out there. Uh, we uh, should have our inventory by the 24th, and we've mentioned previously that we're going to start taking orders on the 24th. Uh, but at the official release date uh, is October 31st, Halloween, uh, Satan's favorite holiday, trying to remind him that even though he thinks he's going to win this battle and take over the world, he's not, because we know what God's Word says. Um, but a reminder for those of you here at Plum Creek Chapel, uh, there's no need uh, to order it because we are, Not By Works is going to provide 50 copies for free to the church for those of you that come here. So we'll have those, as soon as we get them, we'll have them. That could be as early as uh, the 23rd, possibly two weeks from today. Uh, once those 50 are gone, then the church will purchase more like we do with other Not By Works resources at cost, and you can purchase them. Uh, out at the resource table, but um, anyway, look forward to that. Help spread the word. Um, we uh, have several uh, different interviews scheduled. We picked up another one this week. Uh, people are starting to hear about it. You can go to spiritoftheantichrist.org and 
look at the table of contents, but really pleased with uh, how it came out, holding it in my hand. It's a thicker book than the first volume. Um, got more in it, uh, more chapters, more content. Um, talked to my daughter last night, who's a freshman at Grand Canyon University, and she has a professor that was uh, uh, seems to be awake to the world as it really exists and was talking about transhumanism, and so she, uh, from uh, just growing up in a uh, Hickson, I guess, she kind of was conversant in that topic and was able to really talk about eugenics and, uh, and, and help, help stimulate some good discussion in that class. And so uh, she's eager to get the book. We have a whole chapter in there on transhumanism. So uh, volume one is still out at the table. If you haven't gotten that yet, they, it's a two-volume set, and they really build and, and correlate together. So you can pick one of those up out in the lobby or, again, go to spiritoftheantichrist.org and uh, you can order it online. So we are uh, in the midst of a section in this uh, study of the end times on the eternal state. And I've not forgotten where we are in that. We're in Revelation 22, kind of wrapping it up. And we are going to come back to Revelation 22 at some point because the very end of it is just some fantastic biblical teaching about the Christ. Which, remember, the revelation, the last book of the Bible, is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so it begins by introducing Christ, and then it ends with uh, what it will be like for all of eternity when we are with the Christ, with Jesus Christ, our Savior. So we kind of took a break in the middle of looking at chapter 22 to take a closer look at this uh, doctrine of eternal rewards, and that's where we kind of kicked off last week. It's a uh, the subject of the judgment seat of Christ, and uh, we won't rehash all that we talked about last week, but we did kind of lay the foundation biblically from Romans 14 uh, about how every believer from the present church age will appear uh, before the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, I have a handout that I gave out last week. I brought extras this week, so if you didn't bring yours back or if you weren't here last week, uh, just raise your hand and we'll make sure you get a copy of the handout that we're kind of following uh, as we go through this material. If you're watching online or watching the video after, in retrospect, uh, just send me an email. I'll be glad to email that to you. I had five or six people do that this week uh, from last week. Uh, but I do want to put in perspective, since we are talking about the end times, where this event that we're now taking a closer look at occurs. And so if you look on the screen at uh, the study of the end times here, where it says rapture, in the far left, rapture is what puts an end to the church age. It is that imminent return of Christ, meaning it could happen at any moment when he catches uh, the church up to meet him in the air. And then you'll notice it says preparation, unknown length of time. That's because we know biblically that the start of the final seven-year period, that uh, tribulation period, uh, does not begin until the signing of the peace treaty and since that's a separate event from the rapture by definition there has to be some length of time between the two events and we don't really know how long that's going to be my best guess is we're talking months uh, but but not many many years some people say it could be seven eight years some people say two or three years we don't really know but in that uh, unspecified gap of time between the rapture and the start of the tribulation that's when the judgment seat of Christ takes place. So after the rapture, all believers of the present church age, those of us that are caught up because we're alive, those that have already died and are in the presence of the Lord, their bodies will be resurrected, reconstituted, 
given a glorified body, and then all together we will uh, experience this time of evaluation. It's called a judgment uh, because it's the, the Bible uses that metaphor of the judgment seat that we talked about last week, which was a common first century Greco-Roman cultural thing where the uh, Roman governors or Roman uh, uh, magistrates would sit on a raised platform in the town square and people would bring their disputes to them and then they would make a ruling. And so Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, of course, writing in Scripture, says, well, look, we're all going to appear before a judgment seat of Christ at some point. And so they kind of could understand the, the mental picture there of, of, of standing before the ultimate authority and having your lives evaluated. So it's one of several eschatological judgments, but what makes it unique is unlike uh, the other judgments, this isn't a judgment of heaven or hell. So, you know, you see on the list here, uh, judgment of Antichrist and false prophets. We read about that in Revelation 19, 17 to 20. That's when the, the uh, Antichrist and the false prophet are cast into the everlasting fire at that point. Uh, the judgment of the sheep and the goats at the second coming. That's a judgment of everyone alive on earth to see whether they've trusted in Christ or not. If they have, they're the sheep and they get into the kingdom. If they haven't, they're the goats and they're cast into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Then we see the final judgment of Satan at the end of the millennium. And then, of course, the final great white throne judgment, which is for all unbelievers uh, who are going to be uh, cast into the everlasting fire themselves. So, in a sense, the judgment seat of Christ is sort of, uh, you know, like that old Sesame Street song, which one doesn't belong, that, you know, it doesn't really fit the pattern. But we put it in here because the Bible calls it a judgment. But you just need to understand that it's an evaluation not a heaven or hell judgment. It's, it's a time of rewards for faithful service during uh, our earthly life. And so again, that judgment uh, happens right after the rapture, uh, prior to the official start of the uh, tribulation. Now, we don't know a lot of details about the mechanics of the judgment seat of Christ. We don't know, for example, how long it lasts. Um, it, it could... You know, happen. It's, it's happening in heaven, we know that, not on earth, because we've been caught up to meet the Lord uh, in heaven. Uh, so it could, it could bleed over and be happening throughout the tribulation period. You know, there are two things that happen, and we talked about this previously, uh, on earth while things on, I mean, on, in heaven while things on earth are unfolding, and that is the marriage of the Lamb when the bride of Christ is raptured and meets the Lord, and the judgment seat of Christ. So we don't know exactly how long it'll last but it definitely happens after the rapture and uh, in uh, heaven so we last week we we kind of introduced it we talked about the biblical basis for it what is the judgment seat of christ what's the purpose of it and then we we talked about how just about every new testament writer mentions the judgment seat of christ and i've got that on your handout In the first main heading section, we, uh, we talk, for example, about Jesus' teaching on eternal rewards, Paul's teaching, John's teaching, eternal rewards in Hebrews. Uh, I'm of the uh, opinion that Paul wrote Hebrews, but since it's officially anonymous and we can't say with any certainty, I put it in its own category. Uh, Peter talks about eternal rewards. James talks about eternal rewards. And these are not comprehensive. I was, when I was reprinting these yesterday, uh, 
so that we would have extras today, I got to thinking the way it was worded, it, it, this might imply, or someone just reading this without any context might think, well, this is the sum total of Jesus' teaching on rewards or Paul's teaching on rewards. I didn't mean it to sound that way. This is just a sampling to show you that each of the New Testament biblical authors touches on rewards. There's many more passages that talk about rewards. So you might make a note on that um, on your sheet to that effect. But clearly the Bible talks about uh, rewards. And then we moved into what are some ways that we will be rewarded. And I you know, spent some time really uh, elaborating there on the preface. And that is that eternal life is a free gift received only by faith. Like all gifts, it has to be received. It's not forced upon you. you. You do have choice. You can either receive or reject the gift. But how do you receive it? Well, more than 160 times, the New Testament tells us we receive that gift by faith, trusting in Jesus Christ. By contrast, eternal rewards are a wage. Uh, they're not given free of charge. Uh, they are something we earn based on our good works and particularly based on our motive behind the good works. And I talked about how the doctrine of rewards really appeals to and answers the, the longing of the human heart to want to earn things. You know, remember, even before the fall, we were given a job and we were built hardwired into the hum, human system, this idea of earning things, of working for things. And so the one thing we need more than anything, which is forgiveness of sins and eternal life, we cannot earn. That's what distinguishes Christianity from every other man-made religion. Uh, is that every other religion says just work harder, do more, keep these five pillars or these seven sacraments or do this or do that or make this march to Mecca or climb Mount Everest or whatever it is, and you'll get in. Christianity admits right up front, no, we are utterly lost and fallen human beings with no hope in this world. And the only thing we can do to overcome the sin problem that we have is receive Christ's payment on our behalf. Um, so that's what distinguishes us from every other religion. So, but yet, God knows how He made us, and you know, part of our nature is this uh, quid pro quo concept where we earn things. And so, uh, during during the Christian life, this uh, idea of serving the Lord faithfully as disciples, following Him, taking up our cross, putting our hand to the plow, and not looking back, counting the cost—all those types of things—are uh, God's mechanism for uh, answering that natural innate desire. And it's, it's called the doctrine of eternal reward. So we talked about uh, last week how enduring trials faithfully with the right perspective uh, is one way that we will earn rewards. Uh, I have uh, the devotion for this week. If you don't get the Plum Creek Chapel newsletter, by the way, please go to uh, plumcreekchapel.org and sign up at the bottom of the page there. Just put your email address in there. Because most weeks, uh, I include in our Thursday newsletter that comes out for the church a brief article. Um, sometimes when things are particularly hectic or I'm on the road or something, I don't do that. But this, most of the time I do. And this week's article was uh, Seeing the Invisible. And it's basically talking about how when we're facing difficult times, we need to look beyond the physical uh, obstacles and the trials and, and ask from a spiritual perspective, what's God trying to do here? And what, how does this fit into the big picture? And so I uh, had rewards on the mind this week. And so I kind of posted that, uh, that article. Uh, and by the way, Harbingers emailed me yesterday and they picked it up in their Sunday edition. So if you're 
a Harbinger's follower, which I encourage you to be. Lots of great material there. Uh, you'll see that in, on their page today. Uh, then we talked about how diligently seeking God is a rewardable action. Uh, Hebrews says uh, God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. And then we left off uh, here, we'll look at uh, 1 Peter 5. Um, in 1 Peter 5, beginning in verse 4, Peter is addressing the uh, shepherds, the elders. This is one of those passages, by the way, in 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4, where all three biblical terms for the New Testament office of pastor are used interchangeably to refer to the same person. And so that's why we believe uh, at Plum Creek Chapel that um, you know, we don't have a hierarchical denominational system where you have bishops and councils and that tell the churches what to do. We believe that each local church uh, has pastors, elders, and overseers, or pastors, bishops, and overseers. And all of those three terms refer to the same office. And you see that here. So in, if you want to turn to 1 Peter 5 and verse 1, it says, the elders who are among you, that's the Greek word presbyteros, it's where we get things word presbytery. Uh, and uh, the, elder, the word presbyteros refers to spiritual oversight and spiritual leadership. does not necessarily mean old in age, uh, though it can mean that. Uh, here at uh, Plum Creek, we have two elders, myself and Fred. And uh, that's an office that, for which the Bible gives uh, qualifications, uh, and uh, it's a high calling. Uh, in, in the New Testament church, some elders were paid for their duty. They were making their living from the gospel. They were full-time, you might say. Some elders were not paid. They were lay people that met the qualifications. That's the pattern we follow here. Um, the thing he says, The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you. That's the second word, uh, poimain, and it, and it has to do with pastoral care, shepherding, you know, as the term might imply. Uh, so uh, that is ultimately one of the responsibilities of elders as well. Now we saw in our teaching in the book of Acts that as the church grew, by the time you got to Acts chapter 6, the elders had appointed deacons to help with the shepherding ministry. But they were still responsible for that. They still, you know, as the leaders in the church, needed to make sure that people were, were having their uh, pastoral needs met. So here at Plum Creek, because my primary gifting is teaching and preaching, and we also are, have a partnership with Not By Works Ministries, we, I, I don't do a lot of pastoral counseling and pastoral you know, weddings and funerals and the typical shepherding type stuff. Uh, because I learned a long time ago that's not the best and highest use of my time. But we certainly have people available to do that. We have women that counsel with women. We have deacons that help and serve and, and check up on people and are available. We have prayer ministry. We have all kinds of things to meet that need. But he's talking to the elders, and he mentions this idea of shepherding. But notice he says in verse 2, Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers. That's the third term. It's episkopos. And it's uh, where we get the word Episcopalian. And it has more to do with administrative oversight. Administrative oversight. Just general leadership and management, right? So as elders, 
we are responsible to be good stewards of the resources that God has entrusted to us, right? We want to make sure that the building is cared for, that, that the finances are invested in the ministry, and that uh, when people have benevolence needs, they come to us and we, we prayerfully consider how we can help, those types of things. So those are the three concepts, presbyteros, spiritual leadership, teaching the Word of God, uh, shepherding, pastoral care, and then episkopos, or overseers, which is administrative oversight. And uh, also in Acts chapter 17, when uh, uh, Paul is uh, addressing, uh, 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 I forget who it is in that passage, but he uses the same, actually I think it's Acts chapter 20 when he's talking, addressing the Ephesian elders, but wherever it is, he is another example where those three biblical terms are all used in the same context to refer to the same office same position so we don't believe that you know elders are one level and then there's bishops and then there's somebody else over here it's all the same person with the same uh, same duties but if you read on notice he says uh, don't be verse 3 don't be lords over those entrusted to you but be examples and notice and when the chief shepherd christ appears that is at the rapture at the judgment seat you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away now, again, remember last week we talked about the two buckets. You always have to ask yourself, is this the salvation bucket, the justification, free gift bucket by grace through faith, or is this the discipleship, sanctification, you know, Christian living bucket? Uh, and anytime you read in Scripture where you get something based on something you do, that has to be the discipleship bucket because Scripture is very clear that we don't get eternal life based upon our behavior. It's a free gift, not by works, lest anyone should boast. So this uh, reward here is not talking about heaven. It's talking about a special reward for uh, shepherds who do their uh, ministry uh, well. Uh, so then uh, the next one is uh, a special reward for anyone who longs for Christ's appearing. For anyone who longs for Christ's appearing. So if you go to 2 Timothy 4.8, this is Paul's last letter. And uh, he says so much in this letter that is so rich. He's writing, of course, to Timothy. We call this a pastoral epistle because Paul is passing on wise counsel to young Timothy, uh, his son in the faith. And let's just pick it up in verse 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. Uh, in other words, I'm about to die. Remember, he's in prison at this time. His martyrdom was just days away. Uh, this is 67 A.D. And he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Now again, if the, if the requirement for getting this reward is loving and longing for Christ's appearing, this can't be talking about heaven. Because heaven is a free gift. We become a part of the family of God the moment we trust Christ. Our eternal entrance into heaven is not contingent upon how much we long for Christ's appearing. Now, if we're honest, every one of us in this room would have to admit that we go days sometimes weeks, without really thinking about the return of the Lord. We get wrapped up in the cares of this world. We get distracted. We get busy. Um, I hope that's not you. 
and I confess that it, it has throughout my life been me at times, but more and more these days as we see the signs of the times and we see things unfolding before our eyes, our eyes I would guess that if you're like me, you, you are thinking about the Lord's return almost daily uh, and, and maybe hourly, I don't know. Uh, but po the point is, fortunately, whether or not we are consciously longing for our Lord's return doesn't have any bearing on whether we go to heaven or hell. The only thing that matters when it comes to heaven or hell is have you trusted in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. If you have, that issue is settled. But here we're told that Paul is going to receive a special crown because he finished strong. He, he, he fought the good fight well and he finished strong. He didn't drop out of the race. He didn't abandon the faith. He didn't backslide or apostatize. He kept strong. He persevered. And because of that, the Bible says he's going to receive this special crown. Before we move on to the next one, any thoughts or comments about those that we've talked about so far this morning? Are you... Yes. So the question is uh, regarding the reward for uh, shepherding well, uh, uh, well, what about female pastors? Well, it's my belief, based on the plain teaching of Scripture, that the office of pastor is reserved for men. Um, unless, you know, uh, a woman can be the husband of one wife, which actually these days is... <laughs> I've been saying that for years, and it just occurred to me, I can't really say that anymore, because in our culture, it, people will go, okay, no problem. <laughs> but uh, anyway, no, it's pretty clear from Scripture that that's an office reserved for men. Um, so I think that particular reward is talking about that office. It seems clear from the three terms that are used. Um, so, but what the Bible doesn't really address explicitly is over 2,000 years of church history, there, you know, everything happens in a context, and today we have, you know, music leaders, we have prayer ministry leaders, we have women's ministry leaders, we have women serving in various, we have uh, administrative staff, right? I mean, back in the first century, the elders at the different churches didn't have a receptionist or an administrative assistant, you know, who may or may not be a male or female these days. Uh, nothing wrong with that, okay? This, that's a matter of, uh, you know, preference over uh, principle and doctrine. Um, if, a, if a church is large enough to where the elders, in order to effectively do their ministry, choose to hire people in support roles, as long as they're not holding an office that violates the clear teaching of Scripture, I don't have a problem with that. Um, and there are other rewards passages that talk about all of us faithfully serving the Lord, faithfully discharging our duties and our responsibilities, you know, to whom much is given, much is required. If you're faithful in your stewardship, God will increase that stewardship. Uh, Luke 19 comes to mind. So there are plenty of applicable passages that transcend male and female. But for the position, the office of pastor, elder, bishop, same thing, uh, I think that's reserved for men. Good question. Anybody else? Yeah. Yeah, so as far as I know, Jan Markell is not a pastor of a church, you know. 
so that that's this is New Testament teaching on the local church and its governance. Deacons and elders are the two offices that are mentioned there, or possibly deaconesses. I don't have a problem with that. That's a little ambiguous because that term deaconess in Greek can refer to the wives of deacons or a female deacon. Either one is is fine. But uh, so there are women whom the Lord is using powerfully in the church today uh, in various capacities that as long as they're not violating the principles of Scripture with regarding offices in the local church, there's no problem with that. Now, there are also women and men, by the way, in parachurch organizations who are not, you know, doing good things. You know, they're teaching false doctrine, they're promoting false teachings, those types of things. So that's, that's another story. But to the extent that a person is rightly dividing the Word of God, proclaiming the clear message of Scripture, and not setting themselves up as an um, alternative for or replacement for the local church, which is God's divine design, then uh, I, don't, I don't have a problem with that. So, and that's the category I would put Jan in. She's a, a purveyor of information. She helps support other ministries. She's done a lot for Plum Creek Chapel, by the way, because she's interviewed me, and, and then people hear about our church, and they they, uh, they come to Plum Creek Chapel. So uh, I would put her in that category. And then in terms of rewards, it would be a lot of the general rewards that we're working our way through right here would apply to her the way they would apply to anybody else. Yeah, Brett. In, in Korea, uh, there's a pastor, and that's a ministry. Things are the ministry. Uh, you call pastor, pastor. And uh, it's Conferences back, so Zoom or something. A goose girl sent me pictures, and all the women there were, I mean, it was all women. They received the Bible, the study Bible, they got the training. But he specifically said all these ladies either have a child, children's ministry, or a ladies' ministry. Right. So that's different. Right? That's different, right, yeah. So. We have to separate the different issues here. We're getting into a little bit of ecclesiology here rather than eschatology, but that's fine. This is you know, where the discussion leads us from God's Word. But we have to separate the issue of paid and unpaid because that's irrelevant. Some churches don't pay their pastor because they can't afford it. They're a small church or they're a startup or a mission church or bivocational pastors, that type of thing. That doesn't matter. The, quali- the characteristics, the qualities, the uh, expectations, the standards all apply regardless of whether... They're paid or not. As I mentioned in Scripture, some elders were paid and some were not. Um, and the, but in terms of the actual office, if you are the pastor or one of the pastoral staff, if it's a large church, uh, remember like the church in Ephesus had multiple elders, right? Because it was a large church, they needed that many. Then that is reserved for men. So it sounds like what Pastor Augusto was talking about is that they have women that are serving in biblically you know, accurate roles to help, and they're under the umbrella of authority of a male pastor or pastors, which is the way God intended for it to be. Yeah? Um, Matthew 10, 41. He that receiveth the prophet and a prophet, in the name of a prophet, shall receive a prophet's reward. Mm-hmm. How does all that apply? Yeah, so we're going to get to that. Let me see. That's on this list here. Uh, I'm assuming. I may have left it out. Let me just make sure. Oh, was it? Oh, yeah, receiving a prophet. That's right. So Matthew 10 is on here. I I was pretty sure. 
So we'll get to it. So anyway, yeah, that's another rewardable uh, activity. No. No, no. And, and the reward there, let's go back to the text. I'll find it on my PowerPoint in a moment. Uh, is not for uh, the prophet. It's for the one who receives the prophet. It says, he who receives a prophet in the name of the prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man. It's how you treat those people. So does that make sense? Well, yeah, no, no, this is fine. Um, so let me find it on the screen because on my computer I'm looking at the Bible. Um, does anybody see it? What letter it is? What is it? G, G as in Gary? Yeah, there it is, Matthew 10. Okay, so, um, so who, who's getting the reward here? Right, right. So your question is, what? why do they call it a prophet's reward? Well, in the first century, there were still prophets. It was the apostolic age. You know, the Bible wasn't written yet, especially at the time Jesus was speaking. Gospels are a unique group of literature in the Bible. I actually talked about this in Duluth on Wednesday morning at my message. Um, we're going through Acts right now in, 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 in our Sunday service, which is strictly historical narrative. And you've heard me say many times that Historical narratives, by definition, just tell us what happened. It's under the inspiration of the Spirit, of course, and all Scripture is profitable, but it's not telling us the, the way things should happen. For example, you read the Old Testament narratives, and there's a lot of stuff going on there that we're not necessarily called to emulate. He's just relaying the story. And so uh, that's why when I give principles, like I'm going to be doing today, I try to find epistolary literature from the letters that kind of bear out that principle. So the bottom line is historical narratives illustrate principles taught elsewhere in the Scripture. Now, gospel is even more unique. It's a unique subset of historical narrative, gospel literature, and there are lots of gospels outside of the inspired canon of Scripture. Gospel literature, in the case of the, the Bible, is when uh, authors under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit took selected events from the life and ministry of Christ, organized them according to a, a theological theme, and then put, put them out there to make a point. So in case of Matthew, he's talking to a Jewish audience to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. Um, so, But what's unique about Gospels is, of course, the Gospels were written during the church age, like all of the New Testament. In the case of Matthew, it was written 44 AD. The church had been around for 11 years. But what he's a, you know, uh, recounting, like in the case here, we, you know, Matthew 10, is something that happened in the life and ministry of Christ. So we have to say, how does what Matthew's recording here fit into the big picture narrative of what he's saying, and what is that, what's the application for us today? But we also say, what's going on at the time? Well, at the time, there were still prophetic ministry going on. And so prophets would come along, and he says, look, if you receive a prophet, you're going to get a reward. He calls it a prophet's reward because it, it's earned because of how you deal with the prophet. But as the second sentence goes on to say, if you receive a righteous man in the name of a righteous man, you'll receive a righteous man's reward. So the, the idea here is if you are gracious and helpful and hospitable to those that are performing some act for the Lord, then you are going to be uh, blessed for that. Um, let me give you, where's my time? 
Let me give you a quick story, a neat story. This happens a lot, but this was one of the more unique ones. Uh, So while I'm in Duluth this week, I get an email from someone who says, hey, we've been following your ministry for a while. Uh, We appreciate what you're doing at Not By Works. I'm paraphrasing, but uh, um, they said, we first heard you on David Fiorazzo. And by the way, we live about an hour and a half south of Duluth. And we heard you say on the Christian Underground News Network that uh, you're going to be, you know, be driving back to Minneapolis to fly home on Friday. I know it's a long shot, but by any chance, would you have time to swing by our house and uh, and visit? We'd love to love to meet you. Well, it just so happened I did. I did have time to do that because I always plan plenty of time to get to the airport and you have to return the rental car. And I've just done this long enough to know I don't want to cut. You know, so I, I had the whole day designated Friday for travel. So I responded, yeah, I, I would love to. Send me your address. So it's a little scary, you know. <laughs> you know, but I actually, I didn't tell them this. So if they're listening today, they're going to get a kick out of it. But I actually had someone, you know, just in wisdom, I had I'd let someone know, hey, just wanted somebody out there to know, here's where I'm going. <laughs> Never met these people before in my life. If I turn up dead... You know, start there, basically. <laughs> so, but anyway, so no, sweetest people in the world, um, uh, Steve and uh, Sarah, I'll just mention their first names. They had lunch, chicken noodle soup. It was delicious. Uh, and we just spent two hours visiting, talking about the Lord and their journey and what the Lord had done in their life. And uh, uh, I'm neither a prophet and righteous only by the blood of Christ. I can assure you of that. But I believe that because of their graciousness towards someone who's, out on the road, serving the Lord, missing his family, uh, looking at square in the face of a long day of travel. You know, it was a nice little retreat. It was a nice little reprieve. And so that's the kind of thing I think, uh, talking about in the context of the first century, that happened a lot because people were traveling and speaking. And, and so I think that's what it's talking about. So, yes. Well, this was too, but that's all right. It's all the, the word of God, so that's great, right? Okay. Oh, the chart. Um, let me put that up. You talking about the chart? Yeah. The question is, will there be opportunities for people to be saved after the rapture? I believe there will be, but here's what we can say with certainty: there will be untold millions of people who do get saved during the tribulation. That's plain as day. Revelation six. Uh, I mean, sorry, Revelation seven, Revelation fourteen. Um, where um, untold multitudes are come out of the tribulation. Uh, that's the point of the 144,000 missionaries whom God sets aside to go spread the gospel during that seven-year period. So some people teach, based on 2 Thessalonians 2, that the great harvest of souls that happens during the tribulation is made up only of people who never heard the gospel before the rapture. Uh, I don't. I think that's a misunderstanding of 2 Thessalonians 2. Um, so what I say is, anyone can get saved after the rapture, but because of the uh, deception that will be sweeping the world, that will be unprecedented, Jesus uh, four times in his Olivet Discourse warns against deception. He says it's going to reach unprecedented heights. It will be so great, in fact, that if it were possible, even the elect would be deceived, talking about Israel. Um, and so I just tell people, if you're not saved today, if you've never trusted Christ, and you're thinking, well... You know, I'm not sure. I'm a skeptic. If I see millions of people disappear, well, then I'll think, J.B. must have been right. I'll, I'll trust Christ then. That's a terrible 
approach. Because if you didn't believe now, what makes you think you're going to be able to believe after the rapture when the deception is even greater? So the big question, big picture answer is yes. I think someone can get saved if, in all ages if they trust Christ. Uh, uh, the gospel invitation is not closed to anyone. You know, now Calvinists think it is. The Calvinists think if you're not chosen, then you're, you couldn't believe the gospel if you wanted to. We vehemently disagree with that, and I just taught on that Wednesday nights. But, uh, so the gospel is never closed to anyone. Anyone who has never trusted Christ can at any moment trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation and be, be saved. Yes. So that's another great question. So the question is, uh, will people who get saved after the rapture have uh, their version of a beam of judgment, a judgment seat of Christ? Not that the Bible teaches. So the judgment seat of Christ and rewards is a doctrine that is exclusively taught for Christians. We don't see a similar teaching in the Old Testament for believers. Doesn't mean they won't have their rewards of some type too, but there's no clear cut doctrinal teaching about a day of judgment where we will be evaluated and rewarded for our faithfulness. That's something unique to the church age. Uh, so believers in every other age you know, may or may not, but they definitely won't be a part of that judgment. They may have some other means of receiving rewards in the eternal state, but not the beam of judgment. Uh, Luke 19, Jesus clearly uh, relates these rewards to the present age. He says that the king is going to go away for a while to receive the kingdom. While he's gone, do business, be faithful with the mina that I've given you. Then when he comes back, he will give. you'll have to give an account for what you've done. That's clearly talking about the church age. So. Yes? Yeah, great question. Yeah, that's another great question. And I feel like I'm not quite on my game because I should be anticipating these questions and mentioning it when I'm answering these other ones. But So the question is, those that are saved after the rapture, then that means they're not part of the church, the body of Christ. That's absolutely correct. So the church, the body of Christ, is made up of everyone who is saved from the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 when the church was founded until the rapture when the church ends. Uh, this is uh, the handiest chart that I have right at my fingertips to show that. But everything you see in blue on the screen there relates to the nation of Israel and God's program for Israel. Everything in green is relating to God's program for the church. And the church is a parenthesis and uh, what uh, some theologians uh, call an intercalation in God's plan with Israel. We have not replaced Israel. God has not abandoned Israel. God has temporarily set Israel aside as his chosen nation uh, during this time of blindness to Israel, as Paul calls it in Romans 11. But Israel still has a future. At one point, the church is going to be raptured. The spotlight on planet Earth, once again, will shift to Israel, and God will fulfill all of the covenant promises that he's made to Israel. So Israel is the only nation on Earth that is in a covenant relationship with God. America is not Israel. The church is not Israel. We as believers in the church age have unique blessings that come along with being the bride of Christ, uh, the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit, just all, all kinds of, of blessings. And we've talked previously about the purposes of the church versus the purposes of 
uh, Israel, uh, but uh, you know we are not uh, Israel. So here's the five purposes of the church, uh, and then here's the five purposes of Israel. I know you couldn't read those that fast, but I'm just trying to get them all on the screen here. So God has a purpose for Israel. God has a purpose for the church, and uh, and never the twain shall meet. Uh, and in eternity, in all for all of eternity after the millennium. There will be three groups of people. Israel, the church, and the Gentiles. All believers, but all and all serving the Lord, all worshiping together, all part of the ultimate family of God, but not we don't ever lose our distinction. It's not like these are just earthly distinctions. Uh, we are part of the church. So people that get saved during the tribulation are part of Israel, because that's still part of God's plan for Israel. It's the final seven years of his four hundred and ninety year a plan, as you saw in the chart on Daniel that I had up a second ago. Uh, so just the same way that people who were saved in the first 483 years from 444 B.C. until the time of Christ are part of, the, uh, part of Israel, believing Israel. Similarly, during the tribulation, if they get saved, they're part of believing Israel. That's why that final seven years is referred to as the time of Jacob's trouble. It's Israel. And that's why the missionaries that are going out to spread the gospel while the Antichrist is reigning in terror uh, are Jews, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes because the, the gospel will once again kind of go through Israel, whereas today it's Jew and Gentile in one body. There is no you know, national Israel that's playing a role in God's plan today. Yeah. Yes, uh -huh. sorry. Sure. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, remember Daniel says 490 years have been prophesied for God's people and His holy city. Only 483 of them have happened. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, we're almost out of time, but that's fine. I, we'll take some more questions. the three things, the church, the Israel, and the Gentile. Correct. Yeah, so there are believing Gentiles throughout history who did not convert to Judaism. They didn't experience, they weren't proselytes. Um, could think of, uh, well, anybody before Genesis, whenever Jacob was born, 20, see, Abraham was 12, Abraham, Isaac, you know, late Genesis, let's just say. <laughs> uh, my brain is kind of fried. So people that got saved before Israel, people around the world who just, you know, understand there's a God and then according to Romans 1 God sends them special revelations so that they then understand that only God can provide a redeemer and they trusted in him that's Gentile believers so it's it's all believers obviously in heaven for all of eternity or heaven and the new earth uh, but some of them will be part of God's chosen nation Israel some of them are part of the bride of Christ the church and some of them are just believers that are in, in neither one of those categories are the Gentiles prior to the church then? no they could be afterwards Theoretically, yeah, I mean, it's, I think the same thing that's uh, true in the tribulation is what was true in the Old Testament times. All the rules are the same. Why wouldn't they be part of the church? Because the church is done. The church was raptured and we're out of, out of here. And the, as you see in the chart here, this tribulation is the continuation of God's plan for Israel. 
Paul talks about in Romans 11 that today blindness has happened to Israel, but someday the deliverer is going to come back, he says, and then God's focus will once again be on Israel. And so, but it's conceivable that people in parts of the world may trust in, in Christ and be saved, but not necessarily uh, coalesce back into Judaism. See, in the Old Testament, you had, you know, Gentile nations too that were saved, but many of them got saved through the ministry of Judaism and they became proselytes. So they were Gentile people that were part of Judaism, if that makes sense. So in any age, you'll have, uh, in, in the Old Testament age anyway, Jewish believers, Gentile believers, church age, doesn't matter, Jew and Gentile are one body. So anybody that gets saved today is part of the church. That's the only option. But in the after the church, you once again will have Jewish believers and Gentile believers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Correct. So the people that get saved during the tribulation and then are martyred, they will be resurrected, as you see on the screen here, at the second coming. Tribulation believers are resurrected at Christ's second coming, Revelation 20, verses 4 and 5. But uh, they don't necessarily reign with him. I mean, I'm trying to think there are some Old Testament passages that talk about um, like sitting at the banqueting table, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, but the passages related to rewards that we're talking about and that we're going to pick up with again next week or next time, I won't be here next week, but uh, are when it talks about positions of authority, that's related to the church. So, Yeah. Yeah, that's my gut feeling. Well, sure. Correct. Yeah. From battle. So what he's talking about is uh, the time between the rapture and the start of the tribulation. And I like to say it that way rather than the um, unveiling of the Antichrist. I say unveiling on the chart. But I've learned over the years that that's confusing to people because from an earthly perspective, the Antichrist won't be unveiled as being the evil satanic tyrant until the midpoint when he sacrifices in the temple and demands that everybody worship him. For the first three and a half years, the people on earth think, wow, this guy's our hero. He solved World War III and he's ruling benevolently over the world, uh, even though he's really not. Uh, and there's certainly chaos going on with the seal judgments and all that. Um, but when I say on the chart here, I'm talking about from our perspective, understanding biblical eschatology. It's the guy who signs the peace treaty is the Antichrist, and therefore we know that's who he is. And, and some people on earth will know that too, if they know their Bible after the rapture. But uh, as far as the length of time, what he's talking about is the battle of Gog and Magog, Ezekiel 38 and 39, which by the way, you know, we see unfolding almost before our very eyes with Erdogan and Turkey with Russia annexing southern parts of Russia, which today are Ukraine, or, I mean, depending on who, whose side you're on, but on the maps, they were Ukraine, but now they're going back to Russia. You see saber-rattling with uh, China and North Korea and all that. There's a lot, a lot unfolding that could be setting the stage for this battle. But after that battle, there's, you know, a number of years for the, the cleanup. I don't 
think it's clear enough in Scripture to say that that must happen before the tribulation starts. It could bleed over into the tribulation. So that's why, you know, I can't be dogmatic. Why I say months is that my view, and this again is just not, I can't cite chapter and verse. This is just my best guess at uh, having studied it. And I tell, tell this in the, my book, What Lies Ahead. Um, I believe that uh, after the rapture, in the chaos that ensues, a northern alliance, Ezekiel 38 and 39, is going to come against Israel to try to seize that moment and capture that sacred land. At the same time, according to Daniel, a western alliance is going to form that's going to come against that northern aggressor. Now, the picture the Bible paints very clearly in Ezekiel 38 is that God supernaturally intervenes and protects Israel from the northern alliance, you know, uh, Russia. Um, but it's my belief that the western alliance will sort of take credit for it and say, oh, look, we, we solved this conflict and we established world peace. And it's my belief that the leader of that western alliance is going to get propelled to world fame and he's the one that then brokers the peace treaty and signs the peace treaty, and that's the Antichrist. Now, that's, the, that's kind of the way I see it playing out. And I think all of that's going to happen very quickly, so that not, not years, but months. But I could be wrong on that, and I have a lot of friends that you know take it as a longer period of time. One of them is probably calling me right now to tell them how wrong I am. But anyway, if you read in What Lies Ahead in the appendix, I have a sequential order of end times events that kind of lays out, starting with the rapture, what happens next. So, so we better stop. I'm way over time, but I love this stuff. If you have other questions, you can uh, see me you know, after church or something like that. But anyway, thank you guys. We'll kick off again with the service. Uh, for those of you live streaming, that'll be roughly 1025, 1035, something like that.